Salutations Antarctic History Buffs, launching into episode 40 with a menu from Levick's Diary. February 24th to March 17th. Morning. One pint of hoosh, seal meat and blubber. One spoonful of cocoa in a pint of hot water. Evening. Ditto. At first, three biscuits a day, afterwards reduced to one biscuit per day. March 18th to July 31st. Morning. One and a half pints of hoosh, one and a half biscuits. Evening. One and a half pints of hoosh, one spoonful of cocoa in half pint of water. Excepting. Sunday, one spoonful of tea instead of cocoa. Monday, the same tea reboiled. In addition to this ration, we had... Every Sunday, ten lumps of sugar. Every Saturday, one stick chocolate, half ounce. Every other Wednesday, half ounce chocolate. During August, two pints of hoosh morning and evening, but no biscuit. September, two pints of hoosh morning and evening, one biscuit per day. On the last day of each month, we had ten raisins apiece. On birthdays, 25 raisins apiece. On June 22nd, being midwinter day, we had extra rations all round. One of the memorable days of our lives. The midwinter celebration comprised a special issue of biscuits, chocolate sticks, 25 raisins, a cigar, a plug of pipe tobacco, full-strength cocoa, and a hoosh of hoarded penguin hearts and seal livers. Less lavish but still much anticipated additions to rations attended birthdays. Levick dropped the biscuit allowance through August to ensure some carbohydrates remained in their diet in the lead-up to the anticipated sledge journey to Cape Evans. He also experimented with his own food, foregoing his biscuit allowance for a week early in the piece to see what happened. He found a person could survive on seal meat and blubber alone, but felt they likely couldn't sledge on such a diet. The entire party came close to dying from hypoxia during a blizzard. With the chimney blocked and no one using the doors, the blubber stoves burnt through the available oxygen. The stoves went out and wouldn't relight. Figuring the wicks must be wet, Campbell called for the primus stove to stand in, but it wouldn't light either. Then the matches wouldn't give out more than sparks. Levick recognised the problem that nearly killed Browning in Borkrevink's hut the previous winter and managed to ventilate the cave enough that the stoves could be lit. A bamboo pole up the chimney solved the problem, allowing the mess crew to clear blockages without anyone going outside. Tobacco supplies, while eked out until mid-September, ran short early and with all but Priestley being fond of a pipe the shortage made itself felt. Thrice-boiled tea leaves, raisin stalks and wood shavings from the teak sledge meter stood in as a tobacco extender and eventually replacement. Something to at least set fire to for the sake of ritual, if not to sate the nicotine cravings. The social barriers between the mess deck and wardroom did become less fiercely delineated as the winter passed it being impossible not to experience the common threads of humanity 
when everyone's pissing and shitting themselves in the dark, dank cave, with little to do and only hard yards of a sledging journey with worn-out gear and badly weakened bodies to look forward to in the spring. Priestly later held that the men must feel happier with the boundaries maintained, and that to muck in with those of inferior breeding could only lead to tension, positing that Taffy Evans must have felt doubly isolated on the polar foray for exactly this mechanism. Debenham agreed with his friend Priestley, but Wright, having worked closely with Evans and Lashley for far longer and in more trying circumstances than Debenham, never bought in on this self-serving rationalisation for privilege, and I think Wright was right. Mostly everyone got along well in the ice cave, but Campbell, with nothing to do and increasingly hypochondriac as the winter wore on, griped at the ratings, incurring a simmering resentment in Dickerson. Dickerson particularly bucked at Campbell logging Browning over the evening hoosh not arriving on time, requiring the rating signer document counting the failing and Levick countersigning as witness. This incident was actually about Browning failing to follow an order from Levick and using the tent he was supposed to repair as a sleeping bag cover to keep off the drops of water falling from the cave roof. Campbell, not wanting to acknowledge that a direct order had been disobeyed, wrote up the lesser matter of a late dinner, but that Browning was being castigated for trying to keep his sleeping gear dry chafed at his friend Dickerson. Frostbite became increasingly common as blubber-soaked clothing, already offering little by way of insulation, began to disintegrate, but Levick noted in his diary his relief that their diet of poorly cooked seal meat seemed to be keeping scurvy at bay. Dysentery, distinct from dietary diarrhoea, became an increasing concern, and Levick chivied at the mess teams to ensure the meat be cooked as soon as thawed, that any meat falling to the floor be discarded, and that the cutting surface and implements be kept as clean as possible. The most dramatic event requiring Levick's medical attention came in late July, when in killing a seal, Abbott cut three fingers to the bone on an unfamiliar knife. The limited medical kit offered clean bandages and antiseptic, but Levick dared not poke about in the wounds to assess the damage to the tendons deeming loss of function a better outcome than the infection likely to result from any actual surgical procedure in their filthy abode. The incident caused more resentment of Campbell, who handed Abbott the wrong knife during the kill, but who wouldn't own the mistake. Campbell wrote his version of events in the log, getting Levick, who wasn't present at the time of the incident, to countersign the account before sealing the relevant pages together. This incident eventually ended Abbott's naval career, as the tendon damage prevented his return to normal duties after the expedition. Each evening, starting in late March, Levick read, by the fitful light of a blubber lamp, a chapter from the small library available to them, David Copperfield and a biography of Robert Louis Stevenson proving the favourites. On Sundays, after an improvised church service, Priestley read from his diary. Songs made up a large fraction of the entertainments, with Levick and Browning possessing the best memories for lyrics and melodies. As the months passed and discussions became less frequent and increasingly lacklustre, song often stood in as a mechanism by which to stay in contact with each other. 
plans for future adventures came up as topics of discussion among some, but Priestley, as often as not, lay silent in his bag, achieving an almost blissful state of contentment at having no responsibilities in the immediate future. He seemed able to establish a state of mindfulness amid the constant discussions of the future and the past. Everyone dreamt of food, but only Levick and Abbott could actually eat the feasts their sleeping minds conjured, the envy of all others who always awoke before they achieved their first mouthful of the imagined meals. Food and fuel ran short. Flensing the sealskin used as a door yielded enough blubber for two meals, and seal brains, left untouched in the carcasses, provided several more, but enough seals eventually turned up to preclude the need for even shorter rations. As the spring sledging journey approached, apprehension became increasingly acute. Uncertainty returned. How should it stand if they survived the winter in this miserable hole, only to die at some final hurdle, with Cape Evans almost in reach? The Drygalski ice tongue held the men's imagination, and the eagerness everyone expressed to be out of their cramped and filthy hole held balance with the dread of the Drygalski. Drygalski past became a phrase used to denote any challenge overcome in their winter existence. Their previous experience of spring sledging on sea ice also gave them serious concerns. When should they set out? Would similar storms as encountered at Cape Adair mar their progress? No one trusted the sea ice in Evans Cove, or near the Drygalski, the near-constant winds from the south having broken the ice out too often to engender trust in even the most solid-looking sea ice. The Drygalski, with all the crevasses and seracs recorded by Edgeworth Davis, must be crossed. The earlier they made a start, the less condition they stood to lose to their crappy diet and the regular bouts of dysentery, but if they picked a particularly poor window in the weather, it could spell their end. With little to occupy their waking hours and much to worry about, moods darkened. Weakened by his near-constant dysentery, and fearful he couldn't survive the trek, Browning lost his shit briefly, but his companions managed to cajole him back to a semblance of equanimity. Delays due to poor weather saw the party depart their winter quarters on the last day of September. Campbell's careful squirrelling away of unconsidered trifles while preparing for Edward VII land served them well, and an issue of new clothing, far from complete, but much appreciated by the recipients, set a positive mood on the daunting 200 nautical mile task ahead. Morale lifted in leaving the old hole behind them. The carefully marshalled supplies allowed a heartening boost to their diet. The sledging rations comprising the usual meat and blubber hooshes, supplemented by a little pemmican and three biscuits. Three! Count them! A chocolate stick and eight sugar lumps a day. Raw strips of penguin meat served as a much appreciated pocket snack while on the march. The Evans Cove depot site where Levick, Browning and Dickerson nearly lost their tent became known as Hell's Gate. Discussing possible names for the island on which they spent the 1912 Austral winter and failing to come up with anything printable in Edwardian society, the Eastern Party settled on Inexpressible Island, 
both names now featuring on charts and maps of the Victoria Land Coast. The two sledge teams, at first only pulled by two men apiece, Dickerson and Browning being too weak to contribute after the final bout of diarrhoea that plagued everyone in the cave, headed out into a day of fine spring weather. Browning needed to stop frequently and fretted over the burden his weakness placed on the chances of his fellows, but no one felt especially cheery in the initial phase of the journey. No one knew if the Terranova still floated. Would anyone still reside at Cape Evans? If not, did sufficient supplies to see them through to the arrival of a relief ship still remain? The Eastern Party headed along the shoreline with no contingency plan. If every card they needed in their hand didn't fall into place, they would all die horribly. Fortunately, the Dragalski Ice Tongue gave them an encouragingly easy start. A snow slope led up from the sea ice to the glacier top. The party spent one night on the Ice Tongue, and while their traverse did feature crevasses, barrancas and seracs, no one fell into or off of anything, and the mental mood improved significantly as everyone realised the Drygalski wasn't the boogeyman they'd built it into in their minds. Additional mental boosts came from the crossing putting a mental as well as a physical barrier between their present and their past in the snow cave, and the party copped their first view of Mount Erebus in a year and a half. The four kilometre high volcano first mentioned in episode 20 dominates the Ross Island visual landscape, and even a glimpse allows a resident to quickly orient themselves. With the Cape Evans hut lying at its foot, the steaming peak of Erebus beckoned. Near misses with a crevasse and a cliff edge reminded everyone that Drygalski wasn't a complete pushover, but on the 10th of October, a drift slope offered a path back down to the sea ice and led to a celebratory meal with a biscuit and extra stick of chocolate before the sledges headed for the less imposing glacial barrier, the Nordenskjöld. A storm on the 11th forced a day in the tents, but an emperor penguin turned up at Campbell's door, quickly ending up in the day's hoosh, improving everyone's mood. Pressure ridges slowed progress en route to the Nordenskjöld ice tunnel, and Browning's health issues gave Levick concerns that he might not survive. Less than halfway to Cape Evans, the food in hand also caused worry. The relatively high temperatures and direct sunlight caused some of the seal meat on the sledges to shift from gamey to off. A young seal, killed on the 14th, gave brief respite on that front, but the diminishing biscuit supply also caused concern, as Levick figured an all-seal diet would likely be the end of browning, and, as his winter experiments with his own intake demonstrated, probably couldn't sustain sledging efforts. On the 20th, they reached the less daunting Nordenskjöld ice tongue and climbed to find its top smooth and crevasse and barranca free, with another welcome snow slope to let them down to the sea ice on the 21st. Snow blindness affected everyone, and Campbell's health began to fail, the leader joining Browning in walking alongside the sledges. Another seal kill kept the protein coming, but the biscuit ration dropped two per man per day, and with the carbohydrate fueling the sledging, the already narrow survival margins looked even slimmer. On the 24th of October, they came on a large number of seals, 
killing a bull to keep their stocks up, but leaving the mothers and suckling young bee, figuring on seeing more wildlife more often as they made ground southward. On the 25th, Priestley skied to Trip Island to geologise, taking up time and adding rocks to the load, to the mild resentment of Levick, leading in the ailing Campbell's stead. On the 26th, they reached Depot Island, but the eponymous Depot comprised Edgeworth David's uncollected rock samples rather than food. Priestley added the rocks to the sledges, because he was a geologist and that's what they do. On the 27th, they came onto good sledging surfaces and put in some good distances, even with two members unable to harness up. Past the halfway mark, and with enough seals about to guarantee a supply of meat, moods lifted a bit. They might be cutting it fine, but the finish line lay in sight as the peak of Erebus peaked over the horizon. On the 29th, they reached a depot that saved Browning's life. Laid by the second Western Geological Party, and comprising a case and a half of biscuits and enough tea, sugar, cocoa and butter to support a large-scale and much-enjoyed banquet. A letter to Pennell from Griffith Taylor explained that with the Terra Nova unable to extract the second Western Geological Party, they intended heading south to Butter Point. Hypotheses about what this meant in terms of the state of the Terra Nova and Scott's polar attempt abounded among the Eastern Party, but with insufficient information... Everyone was off the mark. Taylor also left note that other depots lay at Dunlop Island, Cape Bernacki and Butter Point. Levick and Browning killed a seal to provide enough meat to see them home, and everyone went to bed with full bellies, knowing food would not prove the limiting factor in their survival from this point on. On November 1st, Levick noted everyone becoming less gaunt as the carbohydrate bonanza that was a case and a half of biscuits gave the men the energy they needed to haul sledge and repair the damage done to their constitutions in their eight months as troglodytes. Browning and Campbell hauled with their companions, raising the morale of all but a particularly pleasing psychological boost for Browning, indicating his recovery from so long feeling a burden to his companions. At Butter Point, a letter to Campbell from Atkinson caused consternation. On the 9th of April 1912, Atkinson's relief party to the Eastern Party had to turn back to Cape Evans due to sustained blizzards. Did this indicate the ship was lost, or that it left for New Zealand following a successful polar foray, leaving behind a relief party? If either of those cases, why hadn't Atkinson sent a relief party north in the spring? Could it be that Atkinson's party perished, or that all at Cape Evans already gave up on the Eastern Party as dead? Atkinson's autumn attempt to reach the Eastern Party came only after everyone gave up hope for the Polar Party. While no one dissented heading north immediately after returning to Cape Evans from an attempted relief foray on the barrier, the general sentiment was that if the Cape Evans crew could sledge north, the Eastern Party could sledge south. Butter Point lies only 26 miles from Cape Evans as the skewer flies, and with full bellies, improving health, and a burning desire to learn the news, the party almost came to grief on new ice, Levick only turning on his heel and retreating to the safety of a pressure ridge in time to prevent Antarctica snatching defeat 
from the jaws of victory. Firm ice further south added miles to the journey. Half the party returned to Butter Point to retrieve the biscuits and pemmican left behind to ensure they could survive the remaining sledging and any blizzards that might yet detain them. The other half cannibalised their two disintegrating sledges into one working unit. New ice continued to force them south, finally reaching the relative safety of the barrier. A mile from Hut Point, one of the runners on the composite sledge collapsed. Campbell, Priestley and Dickerson pushed on to the hut to see if any sledges or repair materials lay in store, while Levick's team got the hoosh on. Campbell's trio returned with a sledge and news. Right. Leading a party of eight mules and Atkinson, leading Geroff and Cherry Garrard on dog teams, headed south in search of the bodies. Whose bodies and what calamity led to deaths wasn't specified in the notes left at the hut, but something clearly went wrong, most likely to Scott's polar party, though the eastern party couldn't know who numbered among that team. Clearly, though, BAE members still occupied the Cape Evans hut. The news, still incomplete, didn't sink in at first. So focused on survival for so long, so isolated for so much longer, the previously unimaginable idea of the pole party perishing didn't register, and everyone got on with munching their food and demolishing the tobacco supply Campbell brought back from the hut. On November 7th, they reached Cape Evans, finding the stove lit but no one home. Debenham and Clissold's replacement for the 1912 winter, Chief Steward Walter Archer, returned before long, Debenham taking some minutes to recover from the shock of seeing men he'd long thought dead. Lieutenant Atkinson, Wright, Cherry Garrard, Grawn, Nelson, Crean, Kehan, Williamson, Geroff and Hooper remained out on the barrier, searching for the bodies of the Polar Party the identities of the dead finally being revealed to the members of the Eastern Party. Dismayed by this news of deaths, the Eastern Party were also relieved when Debenham recounted that the Terra Nova was sound the last time he saw her, but that Pennell couldn't get within 50 miles of Evans Cove to collect them due to dense pack and strong winds posing too great a risk to the ship. I don't know at what point the Eastern Party became privy to the process by which those at Cape Evans decided to head out on the barrier to look for definite corpses, instead of heading northwest to look for possibly alive crewmates, but that a midwinter's day poll on the options resulted in an uncontested vote with one abstention for the definite corpse option stuck in the craw of the six men somewhat, though being British and self-aware enough to recognise how they likely would have voted in another man's shoes, they didn't bring the matter to the surface to the extent I think I, being an ornery Australian and of a different era, would have done. Fuck corpses, using fuck in the figurative sense. A melancholy joy filled the hut as people attempted to deal with loss and relief in the same moment. Five of their company died in trying to fulfil a key element of the expedition, but the Eastern Party slept safe under a solid roof for the first time in 300 days. The dog teams, led by Atkinson, Cherry Garrard and Geroff, reached Hut Point on November 25th, and finding a letter Campbell left there when returning to repair the broken sledge and retrieve some stores, felt a happiness they'd missed in their lives for the better part of a year.
jumping back in time. Out on the barrier, navigating out in front of the dog teams, Charles Silas Wright spotted the top six inches of a tent protruding from the snow. Atkinson and Cherry Garrard arrived, and the trio dug the tent out enough to light the sleeping bag-clad bodies of Wilson, Scott and Bowers inside. Trig Vergraun wrote of the site, The owner, Wilson and Birdie, all ghastly. I will never forget it as long as I live. A horrible nightmare could not have shown more horror than this Campo Santo. In a tent snow-covered till up above the door, we found the three bodies. The owner in the middle, half out of his bag. Birdie on his right, and Uncle Bill on his left, lying headways to the door. The frost had made the skin yellow and transparent, and I have never seen anything worse in my life. The owner seems to have struggled hard in the moment of death, whilst the two others seem to have gone off in a kind of sleep. The sun shines lovely over this place of death. Atkinson retrieved the diaries and letters, spending several hours reading in his own tent before bringing his party together to outline what happened and to read Scott's letter to the public. They dug out the sledge, retrieving more diaries, personal possessions, Amundsen's letter for King Harkon and the rock samples from the Beardmore Moraines. Atkinson read a memorial service and ordered the tent collapsed and a snow can built over it. Topped by a cross made from skis and bordered by two sledges, this grave still lies out on the barrier somewhere, buried under the snow and gradually making its way to the sea as the barrier pushes on. Atkinson led his team further south to the approximate area Captain Oates walked out into the blizzard, but only found a sock and a finesco. Another can and cross featuring a brief paragraph by Cherry Garrard marked the spot, and the corpse party headed north once more. It took three weeks for the entire corpse party to return from the barrier to Cape Evans. In that three weeks, the eastern party eagerly partook of Archer's cooking, putting on weight such that the returnees couldn't reconcile the tale of survival, even when told with British understatement, with the cheerful and portly fellows telling it. It was only later, when heading north, and the Terranova pulled in at Evans Cove and some of the Cape Evans party visited the snow cave, that the nightmare of the Eastern Party's 1912 winter really hit home, and many of those who prioritised the barrier journey over trying to find and relieve Campbell and his men became ashen-faced and silent in the face of new insights gained in that brief visit. But that visit lay in the future. Back at Cape Evans, Campbell took the leadership role, relieving Lieutenant Atkinson and reinstating strict naval discipline. Atkinson, after having seen the ailing Lieutenant Evans away on the Terra Nova, ran a less formal hut, incorporating the ratings into all activities and entertainments and regularly consulting Crean and Lashley for the insights and opinions their experience offered. While Abbott, Dickerson and Browning took their place on the Mestec side of the packing cases. The trials of the six members of the Eastern Party made them a group apart, in spite of naval etiquette, their personal closeness becoming as much a feature of local law as their magpie habits became on the transit south. On the 4th of December, Debenham and Priestley led an ascent of Mount Erebus with Graun, Hooper, 
Abbott and Dickerson in support. Poor weather kept their progress slow, but by the 10th they crested the caldera. Starting the descent, Priestley realised he left the roll of film at the can marking their visit instead of the note he intended. Graun returned to the summit just as the mountain gave a good shake, blew a cloud of sulphurous smoke over the Norwegian and threw a load of fiery pumice in the air. Choking and crawling as the bombs rained down around him, Graun managed to make safety having narrowly dodged being burnt to death in the land of ice and snow. With all hands at Cape Evans physically well, excepting a suspected heart strain in Cherry Garrard, psychological problems associated with long periods of isolation, privations and the communal grief over the five deaths out on the barrier began to tell on everyone and all hands looked to the prospective arrival of the Terra Nova with increasing eagerness. Apsley Cherry Garrard, blaming himself for the deaths of his friends by having not pushed on past the first depot with his relief team, fell into a depression from which he never fully recovered. On the 17th of January, Lieutenant Campbell gave the order that they should begin laying in seal carcasses, likely a particularly harrowing thing to contemplate for the members of the Eastern Party. But with the Terran over late, and Campbell's late order to kill seals the previous year weighing on his mind, the leader thought it necessary. Fortunately for the local seal population, just as Graun and Debenham headed out to the nearest seal hotspot, the Terranova appeared on the horizon. All hands turned out to greet their relief. Teddy Evans, recovered from his sledging journey and promoted to commander, the youngest in the Royal Navy, and placed in command of the Terranova, looking for and failing to find any face from the Pole Party, addressed Lieutenant Campbell from offshore. Campbell, is everyone well? After a pause, Campbell responded, The Southern Party reached the South Pole on the 17th of January last year, but were all lost on the return journey. The ship's crew lowered the ensigns to half-mast and tactfully put away five parcels of letters, but couldn't understand the apparent merriment on the shore, where some of those no longer facing a third winter in Antarctica had already mourned the dead for nine months. The prospect of heading to New Zealand brought out smiles and laughter those aboard the Terra Nova couldn't understand. A cross stands on Observation Hill. Carved by Carpenter Davies and engraved with Apsley Cherry Garrard's choice of quote, To strive, to seek, to find and not to yield, from Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson. This memorial still stands before magnificent views of Victoria Land, the Barrier and Mount Erebus and will likely remain in place for centuries more. Carting the cross from Cape Evans nearly cost Tom Crean his life, as he fell through the sea ice on two occasions. It was not the first, and it wouldn't be the last time, Antarctica almost claimed the life of this stalwart explorer. The mules were shot. The remaining dogs, already adopted by expedition members, were loaded aboard the ship. Graun led a ski party west to collect remaining geological samples cached by Taylor and Debenham. Once all hands came aboard, the ship visited Evans Cove, as already mentioned, where Priestley collected his own remaining geological material, while tourists from the ship and Cape Evans looked over his past existence. Commander Evans wrote of the ice cave, 
the visit to the igloo revealed in itself a story of hardship that brought home to us what Campbell never would have told. There was only one place in this smoke-begrimed cavern where a short man could stand upright. In odd corners were discarded clothes saturated with blubber and absolutely black. The weight of these garments was extraordinary, and we experienced strange sensations as we examined the cheerless hole that had been the only home of six of our hardiest men. No cell prisoners ever lived through such discomfort. The Terra Nova depoted enough stores at Terra Nova Bay to sustain any subsequent party unfortunate enough to find themselves on that part of the coast and see them as far as the depot at Butter Point, before heading north. On the 10th of February, 1913, the Terra Nova sailed into Olmaru, New Zealand, putting ashore Atkinson, Pennell and Crean by boat. The trio sent a coded telegram to Central News, whose sponsorship contracts helped pay for Scott's British Antarctic expedition, giving them their scoop. Within hours, the world knew Scott and his men reached the pole after Amundsen and died in a blizzard on the return journey. Kathleen Scott, in transit to New Zealand where the news broke, became one of the last people on earth to learn of her husband's death. The tense years leading up to the First World War and the British habit of lauding heroic failures saw Scott elevated to national tragic martyr, eclipsing the successes of other explorers for decades either side of his maudlin end as Britain embraced their deadline with religious zeal. I've recently read a hypothesis that accounts for this particularly British habit of elevating tragic failure to heroic status. The author's idea is that the British didn't want to contemplate the oppression that their empire required, so by focusing on noble suffering and sacrifice, they managed to feel sorry for themselves without ever needing to contemplate the people that they might actually feel sorry for if they ever gave them any consideration. So the charge of the Light Brigade, Gordon of Khartoum, and Scott of the Antarctic are a sort of white man's burden that you can build a statue to. The loss of almost an entire cohort of young men in the blood and mud of trench warfare in the age of the machine gun meant this elevation of a dead runner-up was the last of its kind. Plenty of people have received posthumous medals and plaudits since then, but none has been given the sustained gilded epitaph that Scott received. Princess Diana received a send-off similar in scale to Scott's, but didn't achieve the lasting place in the social consciousness that Scott did through the efforts of Sir Clements Markham and J.M. Barry. Scott's wife Kathleen helped promote the legend, placing Scott on a pedestal figuratively, as an example for their son, and literally, with their sculpture of her husband. A bronze version stands in Waterloo Place, London, and a white marble copy stood in Christchurch until the earthquakes of February 2011 knocked it from its plinth and it broke in half. Its pieces are now on display in a museum about the Christchurch earthquakes, and a recent announcement shows they are slated for repair. Kathleen Scott's sculpture of Wilson stands in Cheltenham. Ponting, home and exhibiting the expedition images and footage since the first relief visit by the Terra Nova, put in another ten months of lectures and lantern shows, retelling the story the nation already knew well 
and incorporated into their national narrative as the example of gallantry and valour. Ponting's run only ending when the First World War interrupted. A memorial fund raised £74,000, half going to settling expedition debts and the publication of reports, and the other half going to the relatives of the dead. There are so many contingent decisions in the chain of events that led to the deaths of the Pol Party that changing any single parameter likely would not have made a difference. Perhaps perfect weather might have given them the margins, but to have survived a pole trek in the unusually harsh southern sledging season they faced, they would have needed to use dog teams exclusively all the way to the pole and back, and trained harder in the use of skis. In short, they would have needed to be Amundsen's team. Scott was a product of a preceding era. He loved the technological developments the Navy began adopting during his service, and became highly competent as a torpedo officer but he was still of the mindset of the pre-Fission Navy. Many of his decisions make sense in that cultural framework, but appear catastrophically sentimental or stubborn to modern eyes. In this case, it cost him his life, but just two decades earlier, naval officers made similar decisions costing lives and ships, and received promotions for their dedication to orders and protocol. Scott received criticism in the immediate wake of the BAE, but it largely went unheard in the cacophony of public grief and misguided renditions of Blake's Jerusalem. In 1979, Roland Huntford published Scott and Amundsen, in which he criticised many of Scott's assumptions and decisions. Huntsford's work stands as the first in a flood of books damning Scott and contrary works excusing his shortcomings and highlighting his better qualities. The scientific findings of the expedition worked up into eight volumes on zoology, four on physiography, three on meteorology, one on glaciology, which stood as a landmark in its field for several decades, one volume on botany, two volumes and numerous papers on geology and physics, and naval charts of everywhere the BAE parties travelled. All up, the publications took 50 years to run to completion. George Simpson hypothesised, and later records confirmed, that the conditions into which the southern parties departed were unusually cold on the barrier and polar plateau. A one in ten year occurrence, Simpson calculated, produced the cold that drained the polar party of their energy and then their lives. According to Debenham, the geological specimens collected on the descent of the Beardmore Glacier, while dead weight on the sledge that the team could have done without, yielded the best fossils of arborescent plants yet seen from the Ross Quadrant of Antarctica, and helped settle questions regarding links between the Beacon sandstone deposits and Australian rocks. The Glossopterus fossils in those samples further fuelled already enthusiastic but ultimately futile attempts to find subsided land bridges between Antarctica and the other continents, but no one would know about plate tectonics for several years as Alfred Wegener was just getting his prototype ideas on the matter published, and no one would take them seriously for another half century. And it turned out that Wilson's penguin eggs didn't yield the expected information, because recapitulation turned out not to be all it was cracked up to be, and penguins didn't fit into the phylogeny where Wilson and his contemporaries expected. Many members of the BAE Mark III received promotions for their service, 
and Tom Crean and William Lashley, in addition to the Polar Medals awarded to all hands, received the Albert Medal, which later became the George Cross, for their selfless efforts in saving the life of Lieutenant Evans. Lord Curzon, President of the Royal Geographic Society at the time, commented that, No more brilliant thing has ever been accomplished in the history of Arctic or Antarctic exploration. Tom Crean, Alf Cheatham and Abel Seaman MacLeod applied to join Shackleton's ITAE as soon as they reached England, heading south once more in 1914, just as war broke out on the continent. Many members of the expedition served in the First World War, three losing their lives in the conflict. Many personal narratives went to press in the wake of the expedition. I've already mentioned The Worst Journey in the World by Apsley Cherry Garrard. Initially disdainful of those who wrote about their adventures, he published his book nine years after his return to England, in part on the encouragement of his neighbour, George Bernard Shaw, and in part because he felt the story needed telling. It remains in print to this day, and is often cited as the best polar literature to date, though Roland Huntford sees in it an attempt to justify Cherry Garrard's decisions during the expedition. If that's the case, it does a good job, and I don't think Cherry Garrard needed to cane himself over the outcomes as much as he did in the decades after the death of his friends. His crooked teeth, a result of violent shivering on the winter journey, and depressive episodes stemming from his time on the ice, characterised his poor health in the wake of his southern travels, and he died in 1959. Scott's writings, after some judicious editing by what we would now consider a PR team, were published as The Last Expedition. As already noted in the series, Scott could write well, and this comes across clearly in the text, but the inevitability of the finale and the harrowing nature of the final letters makes it a nerve-wracking read. This disquieting literature is mirrored in the sledging diaries of Dr Wilson, published in a British form as South Pole Odyssey. Though as mentioned in episode 38, Wilson tends to downplay hardships and gives praise to his god for both challenges and boons. Besides the various edits of The Great White Silence documentary that he produced and toured extensively, Herbert Ponting wrote The Great White South, recounting the year he spent with the expedition firsthand and giving a second-hand recap of events in the second year. My copy, in addition to a foreword by Lady Kathleen Scott, features an introduction by Roland Hunford, who offers insights only available long after the expedition's end and which would likely rankle Lady Kathleen Scott and Sir Clements Markham were they alive to read Hunford's interpretation of the BAE's legacy. Lieutenant Evans published his account as South with Scott, featuring a dedication to Crean and Lashley. Raymond Priestley published Antarctic Adventure, Scott's Northern Party, the only published first-hand account of events at Cape Adair and Inexpressible Island during the BAE Mark III. Priestley went on to Vice-Chancellor roles at the University of Melbourne and the University of Birmingham, served as President of the Royal Geographic Society, and started the Scott Polar Institute with Frank Debenham. He also served as the Deputy Director of the Falkland Island Dependency Survey, which later became the British Antarctic Survey. 
The BAE Mark III was the last expedition in which Sir Clements Markham played an influential role. He put a lot of energy into blaming anyone he could credibly lay any responsibility on for the death of his protege, but never acknowledged his own part in winding up Scott's clockwork to the point the man couldn't hold to any course other than manhauling to the pole and back. Amundsen copped a lot of Markham's ire, but had the Norwegians operated entirely in silence, or headed north as originally planned, or done anything other than what they did, the outcome likely would have been the same, and Markham likely would have found another scapegoat to prevent his feeling any personal regret over the role he played in shaping these events in the two decades leading up to their culmination. He lived long enough to see the Royal Geographic Society policy regarding women switch once more, and after a couple more years pontificating on geography and helping fuel the Scott mythos machine, died in 1916 when he set fire to his bedclothes with the candle by which he was reading. I don't always retroactively wish the people I dislike would die in a fire, but when I do... Markham's many detractors didn't hesitate in condemning his legacy. Among them, Hugh Robert Mill, William Spears Bruce, Frank Debenham, and Robert Rudmose Brown. I've read this story since childhood, and it's grim stuff. After reading several accounts of the expedition in preparation for these episodes... I think I'll give it a long rest. Scott's reputation is tarnished, or at least no longer polished to such a high sheen in modern eyes, but not because the story has changed. The story is the same, but the society in which his suffering and sacrifice made sense has changed. I vacillate in my opinion of him as a person and as a leader, but I'm always saddened reading about his end. And bringing episode 40 to an end, I'd like to give a shout out to Glenn Mad Dog Madigan. We worked closely together for two years, and he's still a good friend. Hope he's listening. Take care and appreciate your coffee. (laughs) 